Chapter 5 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Royston Coppinger, Brooklyn, New York. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 5 The Modern Art of Stage Direction. 1. The acted drama is a compound work of art exhibiting a coordination of the labors of several different artists, each of whom employs his own distinct medium of expression. Thus, in this multifarious modern age, a single acted play may call into conjunction the diverse arts of writing, acting, dancing, painting, sculpture, decoration, music, and illustrative illumination. And the artist who supplies any of these separate elements to the general and finished fabric may be ignorant of the methods of his fellow laborers. No one man, unaided, can accomplish the entire work. And yet, if the final product is to be worthy of the name of art, some individual among these many and diverse collaborators must be singled out and made finally responsible for the appeal of the acted drama as a whole. The drama has altered its complexion from age to age, according as one or another of these associated artists has been set in supreme command, to the subordination of his fellow craftsmen. Until the present age, the captaincy has always fallen either to the author or to the actor, and the other artists have always been subservient to these. In reviewing the history of drama from the earliest times until our own, we might easily divide it into literary periods and histrionic periods, according as the author or the actor has, for the moment, assumed dominion over it. A curious and interesting point is that the periods of great authors and the periods of great actors have never coincided. Whenever the artist of one type has been supreme, the artist of the other type has been, necessarily, it would seem in retrospect, merely a contributory functionary. History, which has engraved on granite the names of the authors of the great Greek tragedies, has told us next to nothing of their actors. The two actors employed by Aeschylus, the three employed by Sophocles, were granted very little opportunity for the exploitation of themselves. Their masks robbed them of the personal appeal of facial expression. Their stilted boots inhibited any movements except those which were conventionally plastic. And all that was left to them was to give voice to the commentary of the poet on a national and familiar fable. The evolutions of the chorus must have offered scope for the contributions of a master of the allied arts of sculpture and the dance. But the primary and all-important appeal of the drama was invested in the lines. If the verse were spoken with audibly and read with dignity, the play would have its chance, and its success or failure depended almost solely on the prowess of the author. Sophocles and Euripides could win prizes by themselves without any indispensable assistance from a collaborating actor. Again, in the Elizabethan period, the appeal of the acted drama depended mainly on the author. History has recorded reverently the names of innumerable writers of that spacious age, but has deleted from recollection the names of all but the very foremost actors. Elaine and Burbage are remembered, but with the fullest data bequeathed to us by contemporary commentators, it is impossible for us to publish the entire cast of any play of Shakespeare's. The reason is that, in the Elizabethan period, the lines themselves were immeasurably more important than any speaker of them, and the actor was regarded only as a secondary and comparatively unimportant artist. 
But when, a little later in history, we turn our attention to the records of great actors, we perceive, with a little wonderment at first, that they have flourished only in periods when dramatic authorship has been at a very low ebb. Betterton is the first great tragic actor of whom we read in the records of the English stage, and he ruled at the theatre at a time when, if we accept the two masterpieces of Otway, the authorship of tragedy had sunk beneath contempt. Garrick, the greatest actor that the English stage remembers, flourished in an age when tragedy was absolutely sterile and when comedy had paused to catch its breath in mid-transition from Congreve to Sheridan. He played King Lear with a fabricated happy ending, and made his last appearance on the stage in a comedy by the now-forgotten Mrs. Sentlever. Later, when Sheridan began to write, we hear a great deal of him and very little of his actors. And still later, in the early 19th century, when dramatic authorship dived downward to the lowest point that it has ever touched in England, we observe, in reminiscence, a great galaxy of actors, Keane and the Kembles and Mrs. Siddons and McCready. The obvious deduction from this summary historical review appears to be that the theatre-going public will pay its money for only one thing at a time, either to hear what an author has to say or to see an actor act, and that it has never supported the theatre to receive both of these distinct impressions simultaneously and equally. Thus, in a retrospective view of history, we perceive a subsistent antagonism between the author and the actor, which has always been contrary to the highest theory of the acted drama. This unfortunate antagonism may be observed, at nearer view, in the records of the 19th century. Throughout the first three quarters of that most recent of completed cycles, the actor reigned supreme, but, somewhat suddenly, in the last quarter, he resigned his supremacy to some other of his collaborative artists. The period that the veteran critic, Mr. William Winter, remembers with such pathetic eloquence in his backward-looking books, was a period of memorable actors. And this, according to our logic, is only another way of saying that, at that time, there were no authors of any consequence. The public was equally interested in the art of Edwin Booth, whether he was presenting a supreme play like Othello, or a rhetorical and imitative play like Richelieu, whether he was acting a great part like Hamlet, or an artificial part like Bertuccio. Shakespeare, Bulwer-Lytton, Tom Taylor looked alike to the admirers of this matchless actor. But in studying a later and more literary age, we reread the second Mrs. Tanqueray and forget Mrs. Patrick Campbell, and we perceive that Mrs. Dane's defense is a very well-made play without recalling that Miss Lena Ashwell is an artificial actress. The most recent shift of emphasis from the drama of the actor to the drama of the author has occurred within the recollection of theatre-goers only thirty years of age, and the greatest British actor and the greatest American actor of recent times belong to the age that is now past and finished, instead of to the age that now seems blossoming around us. There can scarcely be a doubt that Sir Henry Irving and Mr. Richard Mansfield were the greatest actors of recent times in England and America, and yet neither of them did anything at all to further what Mr. Henry Arthur Jones has aptly termed the renaissance of the English drama in our days. They made their great successes, for the most part, in inconsiderable plays like The Bells and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Irving never presented a play by Pinero or Jones, the foremost authors among his contemporary countrymen, and Mansfield never presented a play by any considerable American, if we accept Beau Brummel by the youthful Clyde Fitch, a piece in which its author's special gifts could scarcely be made manifest. 
Irving rejected Michael and His Lost Angel, by far the greatest play that Mr. Jones has written, and one of the best plays of this modern age, although it contained two admirable parts precisely suited to himself and to Miss Terry, for the reason, apparently, that he could endure in his immediate vicinity no playwright who really counted as an author. Mansfield followed out a similar career, giving great performances in bad plays by secondary writers, and centering attention always on himself. But most recently of all, the drama has taken a new turning, as a result of which the prime responsibility is shouldered no longer either on the actor or on the author, but on a new and very interesting functionary, the stage director. This functionary, who has appeared only lately in the history of the theatre, has already, in many instances, assumed dominion over both the author and the actor, and bids fair, in the age that is immediately to come, to be the supreme leader of the acted drama. To this new artist, the stage director, and to his special art, we must therefore devote particular attention in the present context. 2. The importance of the stage director in the drama of today is rarely appreciated by the uninitiated theatre-goer. The actor appeals immediately to the eyes of the public. The author appeals immediately to their ears. But the stage director, whose work has been completed in the period of rehearsal, is never seen in the theatre, and seldom even talked about after his finished fabric has been offered to the audience. Yet nearly all that is shown upon the stage is the result of his selection and arrangement, and the credit for a satisfactory performance is often due less to the actors than to him. It's the business of the stage director to coordinate the work of the author, the actors, the pictorial artists who design the scenery and costumes, the electrician, the musicians, into a single and self-consistent whole. He decides upon the setting and lighting of each act, selects and arranges the furniture and properties, and works out what is called the business of the play. He rehearses the associated actors and patterns their individual contributions into a balanced and harmonious performance. His work is analogous to that of the conductor of a modern orchestra, who, although he plays no instrument himself, coordinates the contributions of a hundred individual performers into an artistic whole, regulating the tempo and commanding every variation in the emphasis. Or perhaps we may call attention to a still closer analogy that exists between the stage director and the manager of a professional baseball team. It is a well-known fact that baseball pennants are won not so much because of the prowess of individual players as because of the crafty handling of a team by the directing manager. In some instances, the manager of a baseball team may be himself one of the participants in the game. In other instances, he may be an ex-player who is retired from actual exercise, or he may be a student of the game who is never noted as a player on his own account. To return to our analogy, the stage director may be the author of the play, as in the case of Sir Arthur Pinero or the late Clyde Fitch. He may be the leading actor, as in the case of Sir Henry Irving or Mrs. Fisk. He may be both of these, as in the case of Mr. Granville Barker. He may be a retired actor, like Mr. Henry Miller, when he produces a piece in which he plays no part. Or he may be some student of the stage who is not known to the public as an individual performer, like Mr. George Foster Platt. The ideal situation is indubitably that in which the functions of author, leading actor, and stage director are combined in one person, as in the classic case of Moliere, or in the modern instance of Mr. William Gillette. 
For the greater the measure of the compound imagining that is concentrated in a single mind, the greater the likelihood of a harmonious result. But in cases where the labor is divided among different people, the final and supreme responsibility in the contemporary theater is vested in the stage director. At the present time, the actor and the author can escape the domination of the stage director only by assuming his special functions in addition to their own. Thus, though in reviewing the history of former ages we may divide it into periods of the author's dominance and periods of the actor's dominance, we must define the present age as a period of the dominance of the stage director. This all-important functionary has only recently been evolved to cope with the complexity of our modern drama of illusion. We're told by historians of music that in the 17th century there was no such thing as a conductor for an orchestra. One of the associated players, while performing on an instrument himself, merely set the tempo for his fellow artists. Similarly, in the early history of baseball, the conduct of games depended almost entirely on the physical skill of individual contestants. It was only later in the evolution of the sport that such managerial expedients as the sacrifice hit, the hit-and-run, the squeeze-play, and the double-steal came to be ordered by hidden signals from the bench. The problem of the contemporary theater, for the first time in the history of the drama, is a problem of team-play, in which the contributions of the individual artists must be studiously subordinated to the directing will of a manager or conductor of the stage. In their own periods, people went to hear Shakespeare or went to see Garrick, and neither at the Globe Theatre nor at Drury Lane was a stage director thought of. But in New York, at the present day, people often flock to the theatre, not so much to listen to the author or to observe the actors as to enjoy, to single out our most emphatic instance, the stage direction of Mr. David Belasco, who rarely writes any of his plays and never acts in them. 3. It is not surprising that the history of stage direction in the last thirty years has been the history of a return to nature. Never before has the theater approached our present-day success in holding up the mirror to contemporary life. The plays of Mr. Granville Barker, who stage directs his own productions as author and as actor, reflect the very look of daily life, and it seems safe to assert that the modern art of stage direction has carried realism to its ultimate achievement in the art of drama. Let us admit this as the special triumph of the last thirty years of the theater. But the very merits of our realistic stage direction at its best carry with them certain concomitant defects. Our pursuit of actuality has lured us aloof from that eternal race wherein the greatest athletes among artists pass onward in relays the torch of truth. Our eagerness to record the temporary fact has blinded us a little to the vision of the perennial recurrent generality. We set forth plays that have the very look of here and now instead of revealing intimations of immortality. The most obvious errors of the realistic art of stage direction, and each of these, of course, is closely related to a merit and a triumph, are three in number. First, by its insistence on details, it disperses and distracts the attention of the audience. Secondly, it imposes an unnecessary and unfortunate expense upon the business manager of the production. And thirdly, it is, in the highest sense, inartistic, because it is unimaginative. Each of these objections may be illustrated in detail. 
Our stage direction is meritorious mainly because of the carefulness and thoroughness with which we reproduce the facts of nature. And it is erroneous mainly because of our too sedulous insistence on details. Mr. David Belasco may be selected in America as an exponent of the current art of stage direction at its best. It takes him nearly two years to work up the scenical investiture of each of his productions. And when at last he lifts his curtain, he lifts it on a glimpse of life. His only error is a tendency to diseconomize attention by forcing the spectator to look at several hundred interesting details, instead of summarizing these details in an impressionistic picture that should suggest at once and in a single glance the mood of the action that is to be exhibited. The one room in which the entire story of the return of Peter Grimm is unfolded is extremely beautiful and aptly suited to the story, but the setting is too crowded with details, and the effect of the narrative would be made more simple and therefore more emphatic if half a hundred interesting objects were deleted from the picture. When, for instance, an entrance door, right forward, is open to admit an actor, it reveals a vista of a fully furnished dining room offstage that is decorated with innumerable objects that attract the eye. Hence the attention of the spectator enters the dining room at once and stays there, even though some necessary business of the play is being enacted in the main room on the stage. Our present avidity for the agglomeration of innumerable accurate details has increased beyond any reasonable necessity the expense of the average theatrical production. And this is a very unfortunate thing for the art of the drama, because it tends to make our managers more tremulous in considering the possible production of a meritorious work that may not appeal to great numbers of the public. A few years ago, Mr. George C. Tyler published a magazine article in which he complained that, whereas in 1897 the public was satisfied with a production that cost only $1,000, it demanded in 1911 a production that cost $75,000 a new insistence that made the career of the producing manager exceedingly precarious at the present day. The answer is that this insistence has not been made spontaneously by the theatre-going public, but has been stimulated artificially by the managers themselves. The particular production that Mr. Tyler had in mind at the time he wrote the article was his own recent production of The Garden of Allah. At the present date, it is unnecessary to insist that the Garden of Allah, considered as a dramatic composition, was not worthy of the expenditure of even a thousand dollars, for all the real camels and imported Arabs and mechanical sandstorms in the world could not lift it into living. In other words, to look at the matter from the standpoint of art, Mr. Tyler wantonly wasted $75,000 in working out, in careful and complete detail, an investiture for a dramatic fabric that was worthless in itself. Yet it cannot be denied that the success of many genuine and worthy plays is jeopardized by the fact that, under the conditions that exist at present, it costs too much to put them on the stage. In recent years, Mr. Belasco has required his playwrights to unfold their stories in a single set whenever possible, and at the utmost to shift the scene of the action only once. Thus, for merely economic reasons, he now imposes on the drama an observance of the so-called unity of place, which the efforts of the best practitioners of other ages have proved to be an undesirable ideal. It is obvious that, if the art of the drama is to be allowed to develop freely, our stage directors must devise some method of decreasing the expense of the average production. 
and evidently the only thing that can be done is to lessen our present insistence on accurate details, and to invent some summary and more imaginative method for projecting our stories on the stage. For, finally, the main demerit of our current art of stage direction is the fact that, though admirably photographic, it is utterly unimaginative. It costs a great deal to make the moon rise on the modern stage because we invent an artifice that is a marvel of mechanical dexterity. But it costs Shakespeare nothing to make his audience imagine a moonrise at the opening of the last act of The Merchant of Venice. And Shakespeare's method, even for the modern theater, remains the better of the two. The most enjoyable experience in life is the easy exercise of one's own mind and the spectators in the theater will enjoy themselves in proportion as their minds are called easily into activity by the spectacle that is presented to them. The stage director should therefore study not so much how he may accomplish the creative work himself, as how he may contrive to make the audience accomplish it during the two hours' traffic on the stage. There is no advantage in setting half of Rome upon the boards to listen to Mark Antony's oration, if, with a mere handful of supernumeraries, the stage director can make the audience imagine that half of Rome is present. We have carried the contemporary photographic method to its uttermost development. A change is obviously needed, and it is apparent that the next turn that the art of the theater must take is a turn toward a more imaginative stage direction. 4. The stage direction of the immediate future has already cast its light before it. Already, three thoroughly practicable remedies have been suggested for the three evils that have been enumerated. Professor Max Reinhardt of Berlin has shown us how we may obtain relief from the insistence on details. The Irish players have shown us how to save money wisely in the preparation of productions. And Mr. Gordon Craig has shown us in his practice, and endeavored somewhat vainly to teach us in his theory, how we may turn the theater to more imaginative uses. It was very instructive recently to compare the production of Kismet, which was put on according to our customary photographic method by one of our best American stage directors, Mr. Harrison Gray Fisk, with Professor Reinhardt's production of Sumeroon. Both of these plays told fantastical oriental stories imitated from the Arabian Nights, but the methods of production were diametrically dissimilar. Kismet was made beautiful by the elaboration of details but Sumeroon was made beautiful by the suppression of details. Mr. Fisk's method was to multiply effects, but Professor Reinhardt's method was to simplify them. Much of his scenery was deliberately crude. There was, for instance, a pink palace with wabbly little windows that looked as if a child had painted it playfully in a picture book. Kismet was localized with archaeological accuracy in the Baghdad of a thousand years ago and was consistently Arabian. But Sumeroon displayed a careful lack of localization in either place or time. Some of the costumes suggested Turkey, others Persia or Arabia, others China or Japan, and there was no possible means of guessing at any definite date for the story. The architecture belonged to no country and to no age. It was merely fantastically oriental. Throughout the whole production, the truth was impressed upon the eye that the Orient of Sumeroon was an Orient of dream and the setting had no anchorage in actuality. The second problem, the problem of expense, has been coped with practically by the Irish players. These associated lovers of the drama carry with them an extensive repertory, 
and they cannot afford to spend any considerable sum of money on the investiture of any of their plays. But they have successfully surmounted this economic difficulty by casting emphasis not on the scenery and properties, but on the reading of the lines and on the lighting of the stage. When they present a play of Sings, they let the author do the work, by reading with undisrupted fluency the long roll of his rhythm. At other times they contrive to decorate a scarcely furnished stage by a deft manipulation of their lighting. Birthright, for instance, is set in a homely cottage, with only a few necessary bits of furniture and scarcely any properties. There is a fireplace left forward, and a staircase leading off stage to the right. The set is very shallow. The back discloses a blank bare wall, interrupted only by a window and a door. Not a single picture is hung upon this surface of dingy plaster. But the footlights are suppressed. The stage is lighted only by the firelight, a candle on the table, and some unindicated illumination in the flies. The result is that the actors, as they move about, cast huge and varying shadows over the bare surface of the wall and decorate it continuously with fluctuating and impressive designs. Again, in the rising of the moon, the footlights are suppressed, and the stage is lighted only by two streams of apparent moonlight which come to focus at a large barrel in the center, on which the two most important actors seat themselves while the wharf and the water in the background are merely imagined in a darkness that is inscrutable and alluringly mysterious. In these two instances, the Irish players contrive to set their stage with rare imaginative effectiveness, without any expenditure of money whatsoever. 5. One of the leaders of the new movement toward a more imaginative handling of the stage is Mr. Gordon Craig. Mr. Craig has toiled for many years as a designer of costumes, scenery, and properties. He has tried experiments in the delicate art of lighting the stage, and he has made a few productions in various European capitals, which have been very favorably received. He has been regarded by many critics as a salutary idealist, and has been hailed by a few as the prophet of a new era in the theater. Meanwhile, he has exhibited his designs, all of which are odd and many of which are interesting, and has talked a great deal in these rapt, ecstatic, and indecipherable terms that unduly impress the uninitiated. Mr. Craig refuses to regard the drama either as a department of literature or as a department of pictorial art. He regards it as distinct and independent artistic evocation, of which the elements are action, words, line, color, and rhythm. He considers the stage director as inevitably the ultimate supreme commander of the collaboration required by this compound art. All of this is sane enough, but he then proceeds to deify the stage director. He even goes so far as to express a desire to abolish both the author and the actor in order that the stage director may not be hampered by any intermediary artists in the expression of his imaginative ideas. Mr. Craig would supplant the actor by a perfect but involuntary puppet, which he calls by the hybrid and horrific term of uber-marionette, and by a company of these puppets he would have the drama acted without words. Thereby he would cast preponderant emphasis upon the scenery and lighting, and would make the drama only an exercise in stage direction. It is hardly necessary to remark that this idea is mad. But Mr. Craig has recently made a production of Hamlet in the Art Theatre of Moscow, and the accounts of this production are much more worthy of studious consideration than any of his abstract theories. 
Let us consider the following passage from a report in the London Times for January 12, 1912. Every scene in the hamlet has for its foundation an arrangement of screens which rise to the full height of the proscenium and consist of plain panels devoid of any decoration. Only two colors are used, a neutral cream shade and gold. A complete change of scene is created simply by the rearrangement of these screens, whose value lies, of course, not so much in themselves as in their formation and the lighting. Mr. Craig has the singular power of carrying the spiritual significance of words and dramatic situations beyond the actor to the scene in which he moves. By the simplest of means he is able, in some mysterious way, to evoke almost any sensation of time or space, the scenes even in themselves suggesting variation of human emotion. Take, for example, the Queen's Chamber in the Castle of Elsinore. Like all the other scenes, it is simply an arrangement of the screens already mentioned. There is nothing which definitely represents a castle, still less the locality or period. And yet no one would hesitate as to its significance. And why? Because it is the spiritual symbol of such a room. A symbol, moreover, whose form is wholly dependent upon the action which it surrounds. Every line, every space of light and shadow, going directly to heighten and amplify the significance of that action, and becoming thereby something more than its mere setting, a vital and component part no longer separable from the whole. All of this is extremely interesting. Though we may wish that the correspondent of the Times had been a little more explicit in elucidating precisely how Mr. Craig's arrangement of monochromatic screens became the, quote, spiritual symbol of a room, unquote. One point is clear, and that is that Mr. Craig has apparently succeeded in suppressing all superfluous details, in diminishing considerably the expenditure of the producing manager, and in forcing the audience to create in imagination the most telling features of the investiture of the play. In doing this, he has pointed the way toward a new manipulation of the exercise of stage direction, which is more laudatory than the manifestations of this difficult art which are commonly current in the theater of today. End of chapter 5